0: Welcome back to The Table Women, a podcast by and about women in the entertainment industry. I'm Sarah DeFors. And I'm Victoria Banks. It's season three, and we've got so many wonderful conversations and creators of all kinds to share with you. You know the drill. Pull up a chair and get nice and comfy, because everyone is welcome and everyone deserves a seat at The, the, the Table. Table. Do what you want, work what you got, say what you think, and don't let them stop you. Stop Don't let stop Don't let them stop, stop, you. Don't let them stop you. Don't let stop. Don't,
1: don't let stop you. Sarah Stickle is an LA-based A&R working across management and publishing for Born and Raised Entertainment, plus consulting for 27 Music Publishing and Records Company. Her roster includes producer-writers Ryan Daly, who's had cuts by John Legend and DNCE, Brian Brundage, with cuts by Ty Veritas and Reese Lewis, Brian Phillips, with cuts by Alec Benjamin and Machine Gun Kelly. Tommy English, with cuts by Casey Musgraves and Bournes. Tim Pignotta, with cuts by Walk the Moon and Neon Trees. Jeremy Hatcher, with cuts on Harry Styles and Lizzo. Mike Sonnier, who's had cuts on Noah Cyrus and Maggie Rogers. And Emma Rosen, with cuts on Zoe Weiss and Ruel. Also, she represents Mixer's Tony Maserati, who has worked with Beyonce and Lady Gaga, and Adam Hawkins, who's worked with 21 Pilots and Machine Gun Kelly, as well as artists Lennon Stella, Jimmy Allen, and 44 Phantom, among others. Prior to her time at Born and Raised, Sarah served as a director for the late Busby's venture Altadena, where she put together cuts with 30 Seconds to Mars, Tinashe, Sin, Maggie Lindemann, and others. She got her start as assistant and eventual day-to-day manager for songwriter-producer Dan Wilson, who's worked with Adele, Semisonic, The Chicks, and more, and later as a creative coordinator for Cobalt Music Publishing. Sarah is from Burlington, Vermont, where she came up managing local bands, talent buying, production managing events, and engineering live shows at historic punk venue 242 Main.
0: Alright, today, or tonight I guess I should say, for us here recording, we have Sarah Stickle in the house. They got a little breakdown of your bio, your career in general, but you have such a diverse Like resume and history. You've tried a little bit of everything and you have your hands in a lot of different wonderful creative spaces. So can you just give us a little bit of a breakdown of how you found your niche in the industry? It has a million different jobs to try out, but you seem to really be thriving in a creative space of your own. So how did you find that and find what works for you?
2: Oh, well, first of all, thank you. I definitely do try to, you know, dip my hands in a lot of things. It it keeps it interesting, for sure. Um, I mean, honestly, there are a lot of answers to that. I grew up with, like, a really rich musical palette. My dad and mom both have exceptional taste in music, and so... Like, I was the kid that, like, read liner notes in the backseat of the car kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I love that. So I <laughs> that think <was> me, too. <laughs> it just like, yeah, it's the best. <laughs> Should have known that it was publishing, but I didn't know what that was yet. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, for me, I grew up in, like, a fairly small local music scene in Burlington, Vermont. And really didn't know what the options available to me were. So I just sort of got in and started working and tried on a lot of hats. And so it started pretty organically with like playing in bands and writing songs, which I figured out pretty quickly was not driving me, but I did love promoting the shows and doing the administrative side and started managing friends bands and later festivals. and met this really amazing woman named Jen Kroll, who uh, took me on for my first internship, kind of behind the scenes, and hired me on to run a local New Year's Eve event. And she had been like on tour with Grace Potter and had been a tour manager, and kind of knew, you know, the basic ins and outs of the music industry from that, and was like, you need to get out of here and figure out what your options are, because you've, you've hit your ceiling in Burlington already. It's just, it's a very low ceiling. so. She was beautiful and wise and wonderful, and uh, I made a bunch of cold calls and got to an internship at Secret Road where they were really, really kind to me and learned kind of the sync side and a little bit of the publishing side and then jumped off and kind of like through, you know, the more obvious jobs on my resume, figured out what it was I wanted to take part in. And that's really for me is like, you know, being a person who is like funneling song ideas and whether that's like, you know, the more, the more psychology-based side of like putting people together and will they like each other and will they pull the best out of each other versus, you know, like getting a song and then just like hoping to place it with the right artist, which I also really love doing. Um, so yeah, a long-winded answer.
1: There are a lot of sides to what you do. Yeah, that's, that's cool. What, so what does a typical day look like for you or are they all different?
2: There's no, there's a good amount of consistency. I'm, I'm a creature of routine for sure. Um, I mean, I definitely take a lot of meetings. I I love like actually sitting down and talking to people like about life kind of first and foremost, but also just like about what they're working on and what they're excited about and whatever music projects are like really lighting them up in the moment. So that's kind of how my day starts for the most part. I like to do meetings in the morning, either with clients or just with other folks in the business. And then kind of go from there and just send a lot of emails to <laughs> make other things happen and hopefully work on some of those projects and run a lot of phone calls. There are a lot of like producer deals in what I do. And so there's a lot of time dedicated to that and invoicing and, you know, uh, things that are not so sexy. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the basic rundown. And then, you know, I'll go to a show a couple times a week.
0: I love that you touched on the the human interpersonal aspect of your job. I think it's really easy for people, um, especially creatives, to think of publishing and A&R and management as checking boxes and sending emails. And of course, there's a lot of that. But there's, like you mentioned, that beautiful aspect of knowing who this person is and their creative drive and figuring out the puzzle of who's going to work well where. And I imagine it's incredibly satisfying to put together a team that really thrives and works together and then hopefully be able to see that song or their creations out into the world as a single or a cut or something like that and you've had some pretty incredible singles and cuts and you know securing all of these different producer credits and everything especially in the last couple months it's been like bam 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 one after the other do you feel like when you were putting all that stuff together it was kind of like a light at the end of the, the tunnel kind of thing, and now everything's coming out into the world. Or do you feel like it's been uh, a pretty steady thing for you, like uh, I
2: guess stairs as opposed to like the big the big bang? That's a good question. Um, it definitely does feel steady, and like the releases have come really closely together. But a lot of the work has happened very steadily. And I think that's a lot because of COVID and like the way that the industry has started to flow with release schedules Is everything is much more packed together and things really come in seasons a lot more. So it's definitely been like a fun season of just like riding high and like seeing work from even like two, three years ago actually like come together and come to fruition. Um, That's been awesome.
0: Is there something specific? I mean, you've got Machine Gun Kelly cuts and Hayley Kyoko and like all of these crazy things going on. Do you have something specific that stands out to you is like oh my god i'm so happy that that got out into the world or the story behind how this happened was insane and i'm so it's like a breath of fresh air to finally be able to see it in the world
2: oh okay there are a couple and the the song with 44 phantom and machine gun kelly was a very special one because it was a family record so i work with two companies and one of them manages producers and songwriters and mixers and the other is uh It's a publishing company and a record label and they have 44 phantom and then two of my producers did that song with them so that one i was lucky in that it was not a long wait they got in the room and machine gun kelly like facetimed into the session and rolled up like 15 minutes later so that was a beautiful stroke of luck and it was you know it was pretty automatic after that um so that was not a long wait but it was a really really exciting moment of like a lot of things I was doing and spending time on really coming together and you know benefiting each other and just working hand in hand. And that was really awesome to see it kind of like, you know work and you know not feel like I'm over committing to things. And it's just like, okay, this has value. So that was exciting. Um, and then the Haley Kyoko thing was also really exciting and fulfilling, particularly because it just went into the Netflix movie called Do Revenge. And that movie is by like one of my favorite directors. I'm her full fangirl. She also made the movie Someone Great, which like it's broke. So good. It's amazing, <laughs> and it like broke Lizzo. And there's like Lord and Phoebe Bridgers on that soundtrack. Yes, yeah. I mean it's amazing. And she put together another like iconic movie with really strong female characters that are just so so interesting and so cool. And made this really really exciting soundtrack. And that song that I was able to have a hand in putting together was in soundtrack. And part of why that, I mean, I didn't know that was happening. First of all, it wasn't like an anticipation thing. It was like, I turned on the movie and I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> Best
0: surprise ever.
2: <laughs> yeah, just like so excited. But it was like, it was like one of the first moments of my career that like felt very like, like I hit a goal I didn't even know I had, like to see a song that I had to hand it in a soundtrack like that. Because actually like the reason I wanted to work behind the scenes was because of the Garden State soundtrack. Like, when I was a kid, you know, growing up watching that, that was such an impactful soundtrack for my generation. And, you know, thinking, hey, like, that seems like a really cool job to put things like this together. Like, maybe I can do something like that one day. And it ended up not being exactly what I wanted to do. But then to find what I've actually wanted to do and see something like that happen from this side has been awesome.
0: Yeah, I think we overlook how much film and TV has had an impact. We always ask, what's your favorite band and what songs were you listening to on the radio as a kid or CD or whatever? But I think all of us have those Films and TV shows, for me, like Ten Things I Hate About You is one of them. Like that soundtrack was so iconic for me. And every time I hear I want you to want me now or something, like that's immediately what I flash back to. Um, even stuff like I've I myself am this person, but also some other people I've met, like the Twilight soundtrack, Don't Judge Me. Was <laughs> There's no so here. good. <laughs> the first one in particular. You know, we overlook, right? We overlook just how much. Those have impacted our desire and drive to to do this because it 's
2: really freaking hard, so i mean it 's funny you say that because I was actually just talking to one of our producers, uh, Ryan Daly, the other day, and we were talking about like some heavy emotional stuff which we do often because he's great and he's the best and he was like I'm just a psychopath and I never cry except at movies and I was like well yeah that's it like soundtracks are emotional manipulation yeah (laughs) it's true it's It's true the the kind that we love has been pulled
1: back and you understand (laughs) it's like oh this music is doing something to me for a reason yeah
2: and it's like I'm a person that cries quite easily but like I will be watching like Supergirl and like the swelling soundtrack will make me cry Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes
1: yeah. So most of your recent wins have been with men. Yes. What differences have you noticed for men and women trying to quote unquote make it uh, in, in this industry? Yes.
2: I mean, this is like one of my least favorite things about my job as it stands, which is that I focus primarily on the management side and I focus primarily on producers. And what I've come to notice is that my roster, because of that, is super, super male dominated. And that's largely because production is a largely male dominated space and mixing as well, which is a big part of our roster. And really the only women on our roster are songwriters. And we have a lot of trouble picking up more songwriters to manage because songwriters just aren't making any money. And I feel like we all talk about this a lot. Like I'm sure this has come up on the podcast frequently, the issue of writers just not earning. Um, Tell me if it's been touched on before that I think it's like really a feminist issue because like the areas that do make money and like are like set up and there's a precedent for making money are really like very intentionally blocked off to women. And then the jobs that are sort of like music industry, quote unquote, jobs that you do for free seem to be somewhat reserved for women in a lot of ways. And like,
1: oh, that's so interesting. You are the very first person who has pointed that out. I think about
2: it all day every day and it eats me up inside (laughs) Yes, I think
0: that that actually it came up. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I saw a video from a creator. I wish I could remember the other day speaking not specifically about the entertainment industry, but uh, careers on a larger scale on how everything that is seen as a woman's job is historically and continuously undervalued and underpaid, things like teaching, like nursing, everything where it is supposed to be a quote unquote calling, something that you do for your heart and soul's desire that is typically nurturing something or someone as, as we all know, only women can do. (laughs) And, um, you know, and those things are, you know, constantly devalued. So I love that you put it in that perspective because yes, we've of course touched on that, but not in that way and i'm wondering what you think if you even can pinpoint it the crux of that issue is like if you could flip the switch on something do you think there would be a domino effect to fix that
2: i do i mean i think i think there are a lot of like deeply rooted issues around this in our industry and like you know if we separate feminism for a moment and just look at like water songwriters making that's an issue that like clearly is being discussed constantly and needs to be fixed. And I mean, I think the answer of like why this happened is like pretty straight up capitalism and because it was allowed to happen. Like and no like there's no record label or DSP that is going to say like, "Oh, hey, this is the right thing to do. Let us give you more money." That's just it's simply not the world that we live in. So You know, I don't necessarily have a great solution to this beyond, like, empowering more women and getting to a place where, like, you can really call the shots in your career. And certainly there are songwriters who are able to do that at this point and are able to ask for points on the master, who are able to ask for songwriting fees and are getting those things. But that really has not, it hasn't opened the doors for the greater public. It's been, you know, the huge names that you would think of in songwriting that are able to get that. So... I think more of that, I think more of, you know, writers and producers who start their own companies really standing up for the writers signed to them and asking for that. And publishers as well, who have a lot of sway and, you know, particularly the ones who aren't immediately married to, you know, like I'm, I'm going to name names because they're majors, but like, you know, like Universal and Sony and Warner are all intrinsically tied to the labels that they're also trying to get money from. And that makes their position a lot more difficult whereas independent publishers with like really incredible rosters and with a lot of pull in the industry are in a bit of a different situation where they can be a little bit louder about these things. So that's the kind of thing I'd love to see much more of.
0: Is there something that you would recommend, I guess, a starting place for especially independent creators when it comes to advocating for themselves and starting to ask for what they deserve? Because like you said, there's this this kind of vibe of, you know, take what you can get, especially for women. And I know for myself, Victoria, I'm sure you've probably had the same thing, but I'm totally independent, have been very lucky with some things, but I have – even very recently lost major cuts because i was like this is a shit deal like this yeah. is so shit <laughs> <laughs> like, what is going on and trying to advocate for myself and have and hitting up wonderful friends in the publishing and anr side being like hey this is what i'm asking for please tell me if you think this is unreasonable um them being super supportive be like you should ask for a lot more but yes and you know even so far as victoria and i have talked about this i have had more success um, negotiating things as my, I, I don't know if I said this on the podcast, but my my fake male assistant oh, um, yes. mm-hmm. slash manager. Yes. Um, you know, lots, lots less pushback, um, which is so sad. But do you have, uh, I guess, something that you'd really recommend for creatives when they start trying to test the waters of advocating for themselves um, against maybe more major companies that are used to being able to just kind of push their weight against you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is like talk to people in your life who you trust and who are informed about this and find out just at a baseline, like what's normal and what there's precedent for. Because if you go into a call with someone who's, you know, fairly high up on the food chain and a label and you say, hey, I want a songwriter fee of $2,000. And they say, we don't really do that. And you say, oh, well, like I've heard they're just they're going to keep pushing and they're not going to do anything for you but if you come to them with an informed conversation about framing it as a vocal production fee or a studio fee or things like that that there is a precedent for within the building they're going to say like oh this person does know what they're talking about and like maybe i can actually help here you know
1: yeah do you find that there's a difference in uh in terms of how men and women tend to approach the business of songwriting or the creative side. Do you see a difference?
2: I think that's an interesting question. I think, I think I'm going to give it a no, because I think I just see so much difference person to person that I have trouble making like a blanket assessment. So like, I see very bullish men and very bullish women. And I see very, like, gentle, timid men. And I see very gentle, timid women. And like, it's, you know, I th- I think there's really a spectrum. I think, can we say like, you know, women face more pushback and therefore can be more hesitant as an overall thing. Sometimes, like, certainly we all deal with, you know, being taken less seriously from the get-go, and that does affect our experience and how we go about things. But I don't think there's one way that any woman individually responds to that.
1: Yeah, I'm guessing you probably uh, would encourage more women to explore the production side, maybe, of, of songwriting. Yes,
2: and thank you for coming back yeah. to that, because absolutely, I mean, there are so many wonderful women who really are, like, presented as songwriters and billed as songwriters who really have some great production chops and can bring a lot to the table, and so even just being able to have conversations with, like, whoever the producer is in a particular room one day and being able to communicate what you're hearing is so, so valuable and does translate to production credits often um, when it, you know, makes it into the final track. But also in terms of just building a sustainable career, being able, even if like, even if you're not in a place where you think you can deliver like a song that sounds like, you know, a 2000s Katy Perry hit, that's fair enough. Not everyone starts there. But if you can, you know, deliver the instrumentation on a bridge or like deliver like a few programming things or do the vocal production, And just build your way from there and learn as you go. Like there is money in all of that. And there are credits in all of that and just building a resume. And it also just opens the door for your producer friends, whether they be male or female, to say like, hey, like let me invite you into the production side and like work collaboratively because that is how people learn. And that is where women are so often denied mentorship because they don't say like, here, I can help with this.
0: It's almost like I feel like women from a very young age are taught that, because we're shown we have to be perfect, that we're often either held back intentionally or unintentionally by ourselves held back because we're like, oh, I don't know how to do this or I'm not perfect at this yet. So I don't feel ready or worthy to be in that space. And I love that you touched on that where everyone's learning. And even if you can do a section of something, if you can add, you do have value enough to build your resume and enough to one day become, you know, The main producer, and it's never a I am finalized completely, and now I am coming out into the world ready to go. It is always
2: a journey. Yeah. Well, and, you know, when we look at it and so many men are empowered to say, like, oh, I am finished learning. And meanwhile, they don't know how to run a vocal chain, but can, like, loosely mm-hmm. play the drums. <laughs> and, like, that's where a lot of the difference yes. happens. No, it's so true.
0: I've I've hit up a couple of friends that are a and producers specifically because I've had some experiences where um, they've been, like, uh, not able to run, like, basic... Uh, vocal comping or very basic stuff and and then I've been like am I crazy for thinking that this is like the the basic thing that like if you call yourself a producer you should no. be able to do this <laughs> and they were like
2: oh no 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 you're like it's so no, that's real. Correct.
0: yeah <laughs> it's yeah. one of those
2: things <laughs> yeah. it's like it's a conversation I have with my mostly with female writers all the time who like have learned to cut their own vocals and are just like how, how is this not a given for you? And it's largely producers who don't sing that don't necessarily nail that skill immediately, but also don't ask for help. And it's, yeah. So
0: what has your experience in the industry been not only as just a person trying to make it as a woman in the industry, but also as a queer person in the industry, there's so many different layers to your experience. Um, what has it been like for you as a whole?
2: Honestly, pretty privileged for the most part. I mean, I definitely have to talk about white privilege, which I have all of. Um, And yeah, like truthfully, you know, there have been a lot of circumstances where I've felt like, oh, I'm the young woman in the room and no one's taking me seriously. But there have also been a lot of circumstances where I've been in rooms full of women and I find that it's almost easier for me in a lot of ways and it benefits me to be a queer person because I'm somewhat masculine presenting and that like I wear ties and I wear button-ups and I dress like relatively androgynously and the way that both men and women respond to me is different than how they respond to my more feminine presenting friends and so that's a very interesting dynamic that I've talked a lot about with my roommate who's also a gay man and we were we were talking about just like you know, how has this affected us? And it's really mostly benefited both of us. And, you know, he's a white presenting gay man. I'm a white gay woman. And it's like, we really have not faced adversity because of those things. We've only been benefited by it.
1: That's so interesting. I have never heard that perspective before. Wow.
2: It's uh, it's one of those things I've thought about a lot where it's like, have I ever really faced anything because of this? And like, truly no. And, you know, like part of it is my upbringing and my comfort and my own skin, but also like, Part of it is just, like, that's where we are in the world now. And, you know, even when we talk about, like, trans folks, you know, trans folks who are male-presenting, you know, face a difference in their lives. Once they go from being female-presenting to male-presenting, like, that male-passing privilege, there is, like, a spectrum of that. And it's a, it's a really interesting thing that I think a lot of us experience.
0: I've had that conversation a couple of times with... uh trans friends here in nashville um with the intersection of being in the south as well and being in a very country music city um and and hearing how crazy different it is to be to having had the experience of a woman growing up and then transitioning into who they truly are and going i like I knew there was a difference, but it is so different and, and hearing both sides of that. I think it's also really important that you called out the fact that you've had a priv- privileged experience, because I think oftentimes in these kinds of conversations, we're afraid of. Um, to say that we've had a pretty good shake of things because we're trying to push forward change and um, and talking about hardship is a big part of that, but also acknowledging that change doesn't always have to come from hardship. You can still be an ally and an advocate and not have to have a crazy, sob story and that doesn't mean that you haven't had your own experiences the world
2: yes it doesn't mean you haven't (laughs) had a hardship
0: yourself but i think it's really important because i think we've encountered a lot of women that have felt unworthy of speaking of their experience because they haven't had specific hardships um we've had those conversations in email prior to doing um interviews and saying we don't care if you haven't experienced any difference in gender we still want to hear um so i thank you for pointing that out in yourself and and being so honest about it because i think everyone deserves a voice and sometimes people feel unworthy of that
2: if they haven't had some crazy experience no totally everyone everyone has a story even if they don't have trauma yes
1: absolutely so you mentioned uh someone who championed you have there been more instances of that along the way uh in your career have you felt allied with people who've been helping you out
2: Oh, definitely. I've been super, super lucky with people who've championed me. Um, I mean, like, gosh, like, truly, there's a list. Like, I am so grateful to so many people in my career. I mean, like, Jason Bernard, who I work for now has been, like, you know, clearly, clearly a dude. Um, And, you know, a guy who's older than me and who's white and has a lot of privilege in the industry. And, like, who will bring up my name at like things like his poker nights with sort of like you know the boys club of like really nice sweet men who treat me with a lot of respect, but like brings up my name in rooms of opportunity, like brings me into rooms of opportunity and has really like championed and grown my career and is wonderful. Um, so he's been a huge ally. Definitely, a lot of the women who I worked at Cobalt with were absolute champions and taught me a ton about the industry and absolutely wonderful people. And then a lot of my peers, too. Like, I've been really, really lucky to be surrounded by peers who just, like, we we champion each other, and that's our dynamic. So, like, whether it's Bianca Menity or, like, Kaylee Evans or, I mean, gosh, there's just, like, a whole circle of people that I love so much and just, like, love positively gossiping about. And, yeah, I just gosh, it's so many, I don't even know how to answer that question because I'm just like overflowing with love for them. That's
0: the greatest <laughs> problem to have though, is to not is. even know where to start with all the wonderful people. And yeah, I love that you brought up community because that is, I mean, we talk about that a lot, but community in terms of having peers and I almost said loved ones. And it kind of feels like that, the people that you work with and your community are loved ones. And I think, um, it's easy to think of, you have your career and the people you work with, but our lives are so deeply enmeshed in our careers when it comes to creative pursuits that, um, community is I think something we talk about on the surface a lot, but is harder sometimes to really find. Um, do you have, I'm trying to think of how to word it, but Did you have a difficult time finding a community that felt authentic to you or was it something that you thankfully had a pretty easy time sliding into?
2: I'm gonna frame this as a question about Los Angeles because for my experience it is and I think a lot of people have a really hard time starting in LA and I certainly did like I really didn't find like I found a couple people off the bat, but didn't necessarily like feel they were like my people yet until much later. And then kind of as I grew and as I kind of like got out of my initial bubble, it like slowly started to happen. But it is the place where I've had like the slowest time building community and had to be the most intentional and had to put the most work in. And there really is like a culture of competitiveness here that I think not just not just like sort of encourages people to push each other away, but also encourages people to be constantly on guard and like look for what the other person is looking for out of a relationship. And so that's something I almost had to learn how to navigate because I'm from a very cute, wholesome small town where if you meet someone who you basically like your best friends in a minute. So it was like, it was a culture shock for me and I was like, do I just not belong here? Like I I have no idea how to speak to these people. And it really took a couple years to like be comfortable just kind of like immediately coming out of my shell and like just immediately sharing things about myself with other people and like learning the line between, you know, like what's, what's sharing in a way that people can relate to versus like what's sharing in a way that's going to just like freak people out (laughs) and like, you know, learning how to build relationships in a very, very strange culture, but Through that, I have found wonderful, wonderful people, but it took like, I mean, it took a good four years. It took a while. Yeah.
1: It sort of feels like every place that you live has a language um, that they speak and you kind of have to figure out how to speak that language. And It's like we're we're all trying to do the same thing, but we're speaking a different language in how we do it. and uh, one of the things I love about Nashville is that we have such a, such a sort of instinctive straightforward language about, uh, you know, about that, and there's not as much of a guard that we put That's up. That's my favorite thing in about South. Nashville. Yeah. Absolutely. It's always yeah. felt
2: like, I mean, even like when I was still in college and I was just there like interviewing for jobs and taking like my first round of meetings there, like felt so easy there. I mean, it's a really, really welcoming place.
1: I remember my mom going to the grocery store one time in Toronto. Uh, I'm from Canada originally, and she went to the grocery store there, and she was, like, picking through some oranges, and she just starts talking to the person next to her and going, oh, don't these oranges look beautiful? And the person just looked at her with this weird look. She was like, oh, I forgot I'm in Toronto. I'm not supposed to talk to anyone. Oh, She's- my gosh. <laughs> You know, there's so much of that depends on where yeah. you are geographically. So that's that's interesting, you know, to hear that's your perspective. Amazing. Um, well, and it, but- I
0: love that you talked about going from a small town in Nashville to L.A. I had the opposite experience. I'm from a, a very small, like agricultural area in northern California. Um, from a very like normal family, no one does music. My mom is a pastry chef and my dad works for museums. And it was like a very non-musical thing. And I started working in LA when I was a teenager in music and, uh, feel like I, I built this wall because there is very much that like, who are you? Why do I care? Why do I want to know you? Everyone's pitted against each other. And there are wonderful people, but as a whole, the energy is very, intense like you described and um coming to Nashville I had the opposite kind of um shock to my system of like oh people are so nice I don't know what to do with this I don't don't know how to deal with this and I, I I got the comment a couple of times I worked a little bit in the industry behind the scenes um the first year I lived here and I got the comment a couple times like you're so professional like in a you you don't need to be that professional and I didn't even realize I was doing it both as a as a young girl who was in LA which is you got to be a little more protective of yourself anyways but um but also just I was so professional and now looking back it's so funny um so there's such an adjustment period that happens. And I love that you touched on that because it is, I think there's so many people from Nashville moving to L.A., so many L.A. people moving to Nashville. Everyone thinks the grass is greener and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But I think we overlook that in the hype of excitement of going to a new place. Um, and it's really true. Every place has their personality. Yeah. But
1: uh, I'm wondering what what does the picture look like in in L.A.? Uh, In the creative community, we've talked about um, male-female representation, but how does it look in terms of diversity, uh, racial diversity, in terms of sexual orientation, uh, diversity in that realm? What does it look like out there? I mean, obviously in Nashville, we have major issues, major Mm -hmm, issues in in both of those areas. Um, Is LA a better picture?
2: well okay so i think it depends on what sort of music you're working in la obviously covers a lot of different genres so we see a lot of racial disparity within those genres so for the pop community which is what i'm focused on it's extremely extremely right white there are not a lot of opportunities uh, for black folks on the executive side and then in the songwriter space it's like it's a lot of undercredited and underpaid writers, you know, and like trying to like, you know, soak up, uh, this is actually something a black writer of ours said to me the other day. It was like, everyone's trying to soak up the black girl magic (laughs) and that's, and like not get paid. (laughs) And that's a very real thing. (laughs) So I think in terms of the queer community, we, there are a lot of queer people here, which is great. I definitely see a lot of white queer people and I see a lot of men, and so there's like disparity around that. I know only a handful of queer women in the industry, but um, and like we're really still getting role models too. like it's a lot of peers um there aren't a lot of like queer role models who are kind of like in the higher ranks. they're a handful, but
1: interesting, yeah, so yeah. you've got so. you're coming through as a first a lot of the time and with nobody to follow, no footsteps to follow in necessarily,
2: yeah, like I think I think that that's you know, less true for white folks. Um, Like, you know, I I certainly like have role models to look up to who are queer women. But yeah, it's definitely far fewer than, you know, for gay men and even less so than for anyone who's straight. Do you feel like there, when there is, um, when there
0: are pockets of diversity, I know for, for me observing here in Nashville and also having conversations with friends that are, writers and artists of color and um I've had more of this conversation when it comes to race, but um there's this aspect of like you were talking about, they want to soak up the black girl magic without having to pay or or credit or anything. Um, it seems like while wow, there are some wonderful initiatives um here in Nashville and branching outwards, a lot of times it doesn't go past the PR release or the the stuff that is very public facing, um, oftentimes there is still uh, a huge disparity in actually creating lasting opportunities and creating lasting change within fair pay and fair credit and getting into rooms. Do you think that that is something that happens um a similar amount in LA? Do you think that when there are pockets of diversity, it is, tends to be pretty surface level? Or do you think, um, for lack of a better term, it's, you know, talk the talk, walk the walk, you know?
2: Yes, definitely. Like, I do definitely think a lot of it is for show now. Um, I think it's gotten better. Like, I can think of a lot of examples of people who are not just, like, cis straight and white who are having real success and who are well represented and are getting, you know, what's in line with industry standard in terms of, like, their crediting and payment. Um, I, I think we definitely do see a lot of disparity, though. Like, I mean, we had a situation with a woman of color on the roster who got a fairly prominent placement on an album and the rest of the album was literally only by white men. Like she was the only one and they tried to reduce, she was one of the original writers on the song. It was a pitch song to the artist and it had features on it. And they tried to reduce her credit down to 2% at one point. And just, I mean, like insane things like that. I mean, and I, you know, like things on an album of that profile do happen all the time to a lot of people. but. I- like there were other original writers on the song who were not offered that shitty of a deal. Oh,
1: didn't yeah. have that problem, and, yeah. yeah,
2: like my head almost left my body. I was so angry when I saw that, <laughs> like it, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it's the kind of thing we should have had to deal with, and I'm really glad that she had representation in like people coming from a privileged place on her side because she was able to get more of a fair share, and you know it, it worked out, but it's it's definitely a behind the scenes moment that was really startling to me, just, like, how overt they were about it. Like, they were not even trying to hide what they were trying to get away with. The sheer audacity. The Yeah, it's... The, the, I mean, the audacity never ceases to amaze. It's like, I amaze. expect people... It's like, it's like in this industry, I expect people to be horrible, but I expect them to be good at hiding it. Yes. (laughs) This was just like...
0: (laughs) They
1: don't
2: even try. This was just like, we don't even care.
0: Yes. You always, I feel like we always hear it in the E-True Hollywood story or like the movies where it's like, they're being so shady and you only find out years later. It's like, they're pretty open about it, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Like, they're just, they're pretty used to it. Like, no one's ever checked them. So they're like, okay. Um, I think that's... I, I. It only just makes me think how lucky, like you mentioned, she is to have people with pull that advocate for her and people like you that get angry on her behalf because it can be very lonely to have those emotions alone.
2: I honestly didn't even negotiate that for her because it was just like so intensely bad of a situation and so intensely misogynistic of a situation that I handed it off to Jason, who I mentioned before, who's a great champion for us all. I was like, you're you're gonna have more luck with this, and I'm glad that we have you on the team here.
0: Yeah, and having a, a
2: team, even
0: even if you didn't negotiate, though, having community and within your team of people who support you and share can share in carrying the burden of those emotions of having to deal with that um, is a really beautiful thing, and it makes me think of all the the writers and artists who don't have the luxury of having a team. That can do that for them.
1: Yeah, what you were saying, um, Sarah, earlier about um, creating lasting opportunity, um, it made me think about the the gatekeepers in the industry and um, how mindsets need to change in in those seats in order to allow those opportunities to become lasting uh, and effective opportunities. And I think so often you see people in gatekeeper positions wanting to have more of the same looking at track record in t- to to determine whether something is worth giving a shot <laughs> or not um, and looking at the and if you're looking at past precedent and track record then you're going to be looking at a skewed sample right of, of who had the opportunity so um, personally I I wish people would take more chances on, on gut instinct and what
2: they feel is good quality music regardless of whose name is on it and, and uh, definitely like, I think we talk a lot about who gets opportunities and who is first in line, and we all know who the obvious suspects is, suspects are, and I, I really think that, you know, when we're talking about the gatekeepers of the music industry, the people who do deals and are choosing songs, I actually almost think we need to remove deals from this conversation because at this moment in time, everything is so data-driven that it almost does not matter what gut instincts are. I won't say that's completely true, but with majors at this point, it's it's so, so data-driven. It's like It's hard to even call them gatekeepers on deals like that because they have a lot of things they're passionate about that they can't sign either. When we're talking about songs, then I think there's like a much richer conversation to be had because that is so much more about gut instinct and there is so much, I think, just like like automatic behavior and almost laziness in the industry of people who are just seeing like, oh, like here are four amazing writers on this song. It must be good. It must be good. And like Yeah, (laughs) it's like of course they listen to it, but like But like the people who have had those opportunities to get to that point are largely white and are largely straight and are largely cis and it's and are largely male also. It's I mean, yeah. So I think when that like, quote-unquote strategy is being used, then we have an inherent problem. So I do think gut instinct is important, not just because it makes for better work, but also because it makes for a more diverse representation of what's actually being created.
1: Well, wouldn't it really mess things up to put someone else's name... <laughs> on something. (laughs) I had a friend who in Nashville wrote for a long time, uh, you know, uh, uh, she's a a woman and she was up against the typical difficulties you have as a woman trying to get your songs pitched and cut. And uh, she started writing under a pseudonym (laughs) that was like the most male pseudonym she could think of. She she was... (laughs) I don't think there's anything out there under this, but she was using the pseudonym Guy Manson.
2: <laughs> oh my god!
1: It was, oh, that's fantastic! So fantastic! And so she was pitching these songs under Guy Manson, and people were like, "Ooh, this is really good!" Oh and my god! And it was gosh. totally changing the way people were listening to her songs because they thought that this Guy Manson dude <laughs> had written them. I just that's uh, so disappointing.
0: Yeah. It's also so dependent on how someone feels in the moment, their personality, their mood, their own biases um and Totally. It is I mean it I wish I could remember who talked about this um but someone mentioned maybe it was you Vic, um telling a story on someone's behalf but uh having written a couple of songs with major writers and just for kicks and giggles pitching the opposite song with the opposite writers so they lied that the big writer was on the song that they solo wrote and yes the the yeah and and you know they were like oh my god i love this we're we want to put this on hold we want to cut yeah. it and then they're like oh shoot you know what that one was actually written uh solo the other one that you didn't like was and they're like let me listen to that other one again you know it's um
2: I know, so I know funny. a publisher who's a writer that I won't name, but he puts his own name on things that his writers have done in order to like get people to listen to them, and then we'll tell them after the oh. fact. And it's been an incredibly effective strategy for his wow. business and for his developing writers. Wow, and, yeah. yeah. See,
0: that's that's when <laughs> yeah. you can really just. I love when people are like. I see the shitty system. I'm going to make it work for me. You know? It's yeah, that absolutely. that's what you you know like I don't have a problem with it there. You you go ahead use the system. Fantastic. Well definitely, as if definitely. it gets us amazing music and fantastic writers a shot that they wouldn't go ahead. I, I want it all. We love to see um, it. <laughs> we, yeah. we love to see it. But let's go let's go to our rapid fire yeah. because I always love these. So question number one, if you could ask God, the universe, higher power, uh, higher self, whatever, um, if you could ask them a question, what would it be?
2: Like, can it involve me, like, ending up with an ability that I don't currently have? Anything, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think I would ask, how do I teleport?
1: Oh, man, wouldn't that make life so much like, better? <laughs> it's
2: it's pretty self-serving, but, like, I have a lot of people I really love just yeah. all over the world, and I would love to see them more often, You know what? I
0: Read an article that they have successfully teleported atoms.
2: What? Um, so you know, I right? Yeah. So this. who knows? Yeah. Maybe in a couple of years. Oh, wow. I mean, it feels like it feels like not our lifetime. Yeah, if I'm probably being honest, not. but I'm excited probably about the research. Probably not. <laughs> yeah.
0: Who knows what Elon Musk has
2: up his sleeve at this point? You know. fair that's fair yeah (laughs) honestly elon could be could already be teleporting and i wouldn't be like the most surprised he's i'm sure he is honestly yeah
1: okay here's another one if you could clone yourself and live a different life what would the other you want to be or do
2: I mean, so definitely one of me would be in Vermont, like, having, like, hiking days and making pies, and it would probably be fall all the time in this magical, mystical world. It would just be great. And I definitely have some golden retrievers and, like, hopefully a nice wife. And then part two is, like, dream, dream number two that wasn't music was I have always loved politics and being a campaign manager is something that I will never do because it's something you have to start so young and go to all the Ivy Leagues and actually be great at school, which I was not motivated to be. But it's, yeah, like that would be a super cool clone of me. Yeah. Yeah. I could see you doing that. Yeah. It'd be fun. Be sick. I love
0: it. All right. Question three. What's one thing people don't know about you?
2: I'm pretty open. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good thing. Good problem. Yeah. Um, I used to go to summer camp for seven weeks every year with no running water or electricity and just like paddle canoes for seven weeks at a wow. time. It's pretty great. Was that up in Vermont too? No, this was actually in Canada. It was in Algonquin Park. Oh my gosh. I grew up in Muskoka right next to there.
1: Stop. Oh, I go to okay. Algonquin Park all the time. I know exactly uh, what you mean. Oh, okay, that's so camp. cool.
2: Yeah. The camp I went to is on Cache Lake and it's like the yes. most beautiful place ever. And yeah, I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, listeners,
1: check out Algonquin Park. It's beautiful, beautiful. You can be Best off place grid. to see the northern lights.
2: Yes, oh. yes. Oh,
1: that's on my bucket list. I love that. I love. Wow, lights. that's crazy. Yes. That came up. That, that is cool. crazy. <laughs> okay, what is your favorite thing about yourself?
0: I think my tenacity. It takes a lot of it to do what you do and to advocate for your people and have a well-rounded career and and balance so i love that i don't think we've had anyone answer that yet um all right last question what advice would you give the younger you if you could go back in time and give young sarah some advice
2: oh i know this right away because i was thinking about this earlier um (laughs) just because someone is in front of you and seems relatively nice does not mean that you owe them time and mentorship and that's A tough one for me because I love giving people time and mentorship, but I also love sleeping full nights and, you know, actually respecting my clients' time and getting stuff done for them and respecting, you know, my hour in the morning that I get to work out and drink a smoothie and my own mental health. Oh, my so, gosh. Are you talking about boundaries? What are those? I'm talking I about mean, imagining <laughs> oh the audacity to bring up boundaries. <laughs> That's amazing. How dare you. So That's that nice. that is the first thing I would say because I, I really put myself through the ringer being available to anyone who asked me to be, and yeah, it, yeah it's gotten much better mm-hmm. since I have drawn some lines. That's good okay. advice. So how do you yes. decide? How do you decide where you want to spend your energy? Entirely at random like if if an email lands in my inbox and it's from an unsigned writer who wants me to listen to 10 songs i do always try to pick like two but there are times when so many of those stack up that like my anxiety creeps up and i have to just let myself off the hook and they just get all marked as unread and i never listen to them and then there are other times when i get an email and or even like five emails in a day and it's a relatively slow time and i listen to everything and i love being able to do that but that ability to let myself off the hook and just like determine based on whatever a day or a week or a month looks like has been pretty key to general emotional well being.
0: I mean, I think that circles back to women being made to feel like we have to give up our time, we have to nurture people and and be self-sacrificing. Mm-hmm. And we
1: want to as well. It's like, you know, you want to pay it forward and help the next one in line, totally. but at the same time, there's only so much of that you can do yeah. and still be effective at what you do.
2: <laughs> it's like I think giving back and mentoring is super super yeah. important and I also think yeah. it is not more important than me taking care of myself and like that's that's something I would love for more people to hold on to, because I also even see it affecting the quality of the work people do in their lives. Like if they feel accountable to everyone, then they don't actually focus on the accountability to the people that they should be accountable to. And like often it affects like the through line and that's, that's a really difficult thing.
0: Um, perfect place to stop. Thank you so much. It was, it
2: was great talking with you. Yes.
0: It's it's great to chat with you guys. Thank you so much for sharing your night with us. To stay
1: up to date on all things The Table on social media, join us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at the handle at women.
0: Our theme song, Stop You, is written and performed by yours truly, Sarah DeFors, co-written by Taylor Foley and Will Macbeth and produced by Will Macbeth. And as always, we'll
1: include links to any creatives, music, television, etc., referenced in this episode in the episode notes.
0: We'll see you next time on the table do what you want work what you got say what you think and don't let us stop you don't let us stop stop you don't let us stop you don't don't let us
1: stop, stop don't, don't let him stop you